after Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, in all the propaganda, the word white simply got replaced with either Nazi or fascist. Um, and this is what they mean. And this is why it's very consistent for them internally to be wearing, um, you know, Nazi insignia statues on their skin and still go denazify Ukraine. That's why they don't think, because of this engaging in this particular incredibly Orwellian double thing and a very different understanding of what the words mean, it somehow feels consistent to them. And that's why you have a bunch of Russian thugs going around around the streets and previously in Russia and now um, genociding the good people of Ukraine who literally wear Nazi Germany insignia as their tattoos and don't feel anything wrong about that because they have a very different conception of what Nazi means. Um, also, if you look at Soviet books, right, the Holocaust is barely mentioned in history books. It is but a footnote, if that, as a part of the Second World War. They don't think of the Second World War as the Second World War. They think of it as the Great Patriotic War, the Soviet Union versus Nazi Germany, but also the Soviet Union versus the world. Uh, and everybody who stands up to them is Nazi. Therefore, the Ukrainians are currently tarred with that brush right now and have been for the past eight years because they oppose the Kremlin regime because they do not want to submit to the will of the Kremlin regime. It works differently abroad, obviously, but that's why their domestic propaganda says what it does. Uh, Imperius? Yeah, I also wanted to add that, you know, this is this is not the first time uh, Jewish people have been sort of tarred with this brush. Uh, there's, there's a very long history of anti-Semitism running through Russian and Soviet propaganda um, so not only is it like a disconnect for them to to call a Jewish person a Nazi, like they've they've done it before. There have been uh, multiple uh, pogroms uh, in Imperial Russia and in the Soviet Union um, that sort of put uh, put Jewish people up as a sort of you know enemy of the state or or enemy of the revolution or whatnot. Um, and uh, also, you know, it's. If, if you look at even, you know, non-directly anti-Semitic propaganda, they use the exact same imagery that the Nazi used to sort of uh, build this image of, like, uh, you know, these these shadowy figures sort of directing the world against Russia, right? And, and this kind of goes back to, like, um, some of the sort of anti-Semitic propaganda that uh, like like the Protocols of the Elder of Zion, which was uh, entirely a creation of of the Russian uh, secret service uh, during the Tsarist period. Um, so you know, not not only is it not uh, like not a contradiction for them, it's 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 part of their tradition of agitation propaganda to 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 call you know Jewish people part of this giant conspiracy or or part of the the sort of Nazi uh, alliance against Russia. Very true. So the Russians, <clears throat> the most famous document that the Nazis propped up aside, or besides Mein Kampf, was the Protocols of the Elders, Elders of Zion. It was a fantasy novel concocted by the Russian Secret Service under the Tsars. And what it did was a it plagiarized a French novel, <clears throat> like a uh, Harry Potter French version, where it said there is a secret group of people who are conspiring to destroy the world. And then this uh, Narnian race, they actually literally plagiarized and put Jewish people. 
And that document itself is one of the most pernicious and insidious documents ever written by a human being. And it basically painted the entire Jewish people as a, a, a maleficent actor <clears throat> whose goal is to destroy Christian white humanity. Uh, and that document was, uh, it's, you can Google it, Elders, sorry, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. If you haven't heard it, you're probably five or not educated. It is a document that has been used to malign and used to murder an innocent group of people for no other reason that they were born to their parents. Um, the Russians, it is, it's, it's actually quite a good selling book in Russia and parts of the Islamic world, sadly, um, and uh, into the Q, QAnon community in the United States. It's a big deal. It's gross. It's, uh, it's actually, for me as a Jewish person, it's funny to read because it's so bizarre. Because I'm thinking, God, where's my chick? Because I have to work for a living. Alon, over to you. Yeah, I'd like to add that there's there's always been this anti-Semitic current in Russia. Back it goes back as far as the Tsarist Russia, very long history of anti-Semitism, and it very often resulted in these violent pogroms. And once the Bolsheviks seized power, and the USSR was formed, um, there were there were some. Uh, major Jewish Bolsheviks like Trotsky and Kaglovich and others, uh, but after Lenin dies and Stalin seizes power, he attacks these factions and he nurtures strong hatred towards uh, Jewish people and uh, adopts these very harsh measures towards Jews as the years went on. And and after the war, uh, the Holocaust of the Jews was pretty much downplayed by Stalin's government. And instead, it was the Soviets who were portrayed as the victims. Um, if you look at how the Soviet account for the Babi Yar massacre, um, it's editing out reference to uh, any kind of anti-Semitic character. Um, and, you know, the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, which tried to point out specific mass murders of Jews, was prosecuted, and many of its members were executed. Um, uh, and then there was this post-war campaign against Zionist and ruthless cosmopolitanism, and that resulted in many Jewish figures, academics, poets, scientists, arrested, executed, um, so yeah, um, there's a long history of that. Um, can I switch gears a little bit, uh, and go back to the situation on the ground? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, last, yesterday, I think Shoigo met with, uh, the commander of the Eastern group, uh, Rustam Muradov. Alon, Shnia, Shnia. Uh, everyone, thank you so very much. I have to disconnect. Uh, Alon will continue. Uh, Domen, if you could uh, bring up uh, Axel or Imperius to the speaker's channel. I want to thank you all so very much for tuning in. Um, we have a great, uh, it's not just the number of followers we have. We actually have um, a great impression rate. Um, uh, actually, we, we've, we have an impression rate greater than 
10 days, but only in one and a half days. So I want to thank you all for listening to Maria Report. We exist to, to fight Russian misinformation, to bring the truth of what's going on in Ukraine, or we want to avoid another genocide or a holocaust. We don't want a Schindler's List in 50 years about Ukraine. We want a story of the uh, of a faith restored, a people reunited, a land preserved. And uh, I want to thank all of you for being here and listening. I will pass it off to my confreres. Uh, and Alon, please, I apologize for interrupting you. I shall drop off. Be well. Good night. Lailatov. Kotu. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yuda. Uh, um, yeah, so Stronger had a meeting with Rustam Mordov, who's the Lieutenant General Commander of the Eastern Group Forces, and uh, they announced that he uh, sort of kind of inspected his group and directed him to prioritize uh, 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 destroying long-range missiles and artillery system. And I think this was the first time that he was the Eastern Force was explicitly mentioned in operating in, in, in this phase of the war. And previously, the the Ministry of Defense um, was talking about the Central and the Southern Force groups taking part in the capturing of Luhansk uh, under uh, Alexander Lapin, Colonel General Lapin, and uh, Sorovkin, Sorovkin, uh Army General Sergei Sorovikin, and and now they're mentioning the Eastern Group, and 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 the Eastern Group is very most likely comprised of elements of the of the Russian Eastern Military District, which until now have been active in Izium, in Kharkiv. Now, uh, it's not clear if Mordov still controls the the operation in Kharkiv, uh, and his forces were, as far as I know, operating in Izium Slovyansk direction. And supposedly they were there to eventually seize Slovyansk. Um, but it's noteworthy that, you know, he did not direct Mordov to, you know, take ground along, on, along that axis. Uh, and yes, Mordov does hold a lower rank than Lapin and Sorovikin. So it seems to be suggesting that the Kremlin uh, considers Izium Slovyansk axis to be kind of a lower priority area uh, than capturing Donetsk. Uh, and they're likely focusing their resources and higher leadership on, on, on kind of small, discrete gains around Bakhmut, Siversk. Um, in spite of, you know, we've had previous call for, by Shoigu for intensifying the operation along all axes. What do you think about that? Well, evidently, Alon, um, evidently, they are under pressure. Otherwise, they would not have raised the topic. They have by now already failed in Donbass to make further incremental advance. Recent days have shown significantly more attacks on Bakhmut, where they concentrated the remaining shells they had at hand. Their fires have become more infrequent. Um, the information which we have from on the ground, from uh, troop commanders and uh, also the uh, rear, as well as journalists, input from some of the journalists who we have had 
on our program in the last two weeks is that whilst intense, yeah, um, their fire is less frequent, at least in the recent 72 hours. And uh, that uh, the Ukrainians have moved in a lot of equipment, solidified their defenses, and they have not given up on Siversk, for example. On the contrary, Bakhmut has held up. And it's evident that uh, the Russians have moved both their command posts further back, as well as changed forcibly so, or forced by the Ukrainians. They have changed their distribution of supply uh, points and supply and storage points. They fully understand that they are a grid, and they now have to bring different uh, troops into the region if they want to make any advance. They can't just use cannon fodder to skirt up positions any further. Their armor is too slow at this point in time. They're easily detectable. The M777 with Excalibur high-precision ammunition is taking out large of their large supply columns. And uh, the counter-battery fire the Ukrainians are providing is eradicating a number of the not so nice, not so, shall we say, smart artillery positions they've set up. The level of attrition and degradation of both Russian equipment and their troops in the Donbass is the highest the Ukrainian command has tallied up so far in the war. So their situation is significantly more precarious than they thought because they moved out, as you know, they moved out of previously um, well-entrenched positions, the Russians, that is, and moved forward to try to take uh, um, for example, positions around these chance, which they are now out in the open. This doesn't bode well for. Would you say? Would you say that, although they are prioritizing advances on Bakhmut and Sivers, uh, they are. Would you say that they are still continuing to attempt and set conditions for resuming operations around Slovyansk? Uh, Slovyansk, the they only shall. They try to get MLRS in place, but uh, Slovyansk is one of the best defended cities in the in the region, as is Kramatorsk, and uh, they have a hard time making advances. They can't get their own uh, IFEs and armor in place in front, and the area bombardment, which beforehand preceded doctrinally their attacks, um, has subsided to an extent. So they're not making these advances any further at this point in time. Yes, they are still attacking Bakhmut because they believe that this is the crucial axis for them. Uh, but um, as with Siversk, uh, where their scout troops, they have a number of uh, scout snipers and the likes posted around Siversk to the extent that we've had reports from that region. But they have not made inroads into the city so far. It's mm -hmm. not clear as to whether Siversk will fall or will be uh, left to fall. I mean, the reports which we've had, we had, uh, uh, especially on Saturday when Sergio Olmos was with us, we had a long segment during which we discussed uh, the uh, scope and, uh, um, sorry, not on Saturday with Sergio, I apologize, on Friday with Bryce. Jesus, I'm sorry. Um, Bryce Wilson and his colleagues were there. Um, we had a long segment as to what was going on in Sivelsk and how the situation had deteriorated in the past weeks. However, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces have solidified their position surrounding it, and they've also quite clearly uh, told the civilian population that they will not relinquish Sivelsk. Now, that, that is problematic because the city is literally a battleground for artillery at this point in time. 
so people should try if they can by any means evacuate albeit that they don't want to because uh, many people there for them it, it is their home it is the, the only thing they have and they want the only place they want to be at they don't want to be as what was it what bryce said that Dorman, they don't want to be a bum and kia so it's very difficult and this is also one of the main difficulties that ukrainian armed forces do have in donbass uh, it is their own people who are being shelled by the russians and people cling to donbass because it is theirs it is ukraine that's the whole point so it's a significantly more difficult war to fight for the ukrainians than for the russians but all in uh, the ukrainians are in a, in a much better position than they were for example a week or two weeks ago and the russians know it i have a different question if i may sure we, we've seen increasing reports of um how russians are quote-unquote nationalizing grain stores in in occupied parts in, in ukraine and then um basically exporting the stolen good uh outside uh, over to egypt to turkey and a bunch of other places uh can you say a few words about how russia is leveraging the grain exports and how uh well leveraging i wouldn't say that they're doing it but does it make a big impact no yes it's uh, it's theft and we can go through the details as to why they do it and how they do it and, and both finance who's still here with us i think as well as Dorman, can walk you through. when i say leveraging i mean leveraging it to tie these products directly into their own trade networks. Of course they do, but it doesn't really matter. I think we always have to look at what is value for money. They are currently expanding a lot of effort in order to export a bit of grain. It doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. Ukraine has to fight and has to win back its territory and eradicate the Russian invader. The grain topic is a complete sideshow. It's a Russian narrative. It's provoking a crisis which actually does not exist because the farmers of Alberta, of the Midwest and Europe can offset the amount required. This is just a narrative. That's the whole point. Finance. Absolutely, Paul. I, I am slightly less harsh than you on this, Axel, but my conclusions are the exact same, which is, uh, you know, look, the grain does matter. Supply chains can be a little bit... Um, can be a little bit difficult to reconstruct. And when you remove a major grain exporter from the, uh, the market, there's going to be people who are expecting that grain, um, notably in parts of Arabia, Egypt, Horn of Africa, um, that you know, are, are going to be, need to be looking at new supply. And importantly for the market effects, you're going to increase the price of grain. And for anywhere that's a really poor country, that's a problem. I will agree completely that that is a problem. However, if we agree that that's a problem, then we should point to the people who think that genocide is uh, is something we should appease to do that, because that's not going to solve this shit at all. They'll just do this again in five years if they get some sort of appeasement truce, even after this piss-poor military showing for the second time around. So where I go with this is the only way to have a stable long-term Ukraine supply of grain and of other products is a significant victory over Russia 
such that not only is their military degraded, because it's degrading all the time, every day, it is pushing back any functional logistic ability they would have to wage a future war with their mounting casualties, losses, and destruction of everything. But also um, degrading Russia such that there is no incentive for them to go after Ukraine again, and people are willing to invest in Ukraine, invest in heavy equipment in Ukraine, invest in grain ports. These are things that take 10 plus years to pay off. No one's going to want to build a grain port when people are worried about a massive artillery battle breaking out in the next four or five years, because that's the base assumption, because Putin did this last in 2014. He didn't even wait 10 goddamn years to heat up the conflict from what, quite frankly, wasn't ever a not a cold, frozen conflict. Like, he went from hot to hotter in under 10 years. So there needs to be a real peace, and it needs to involve Ukraine winning back all her sovereign territory or this grain issue is going to pop up again in all of our lifetimes and not a long time away. So I agree the narrative is important. I also agree that there's a lot of places in the world that can produce more food. Midwest, Ottawa, plenty of places in the world that can grow more. Granted, the higher prices are going to result in more growing. And people are aware that Ukraine isn't going to be providing. And farmers pay a lot of attention to the grain markets. Um, so while I accept that, where we put the onus is on the people trying to commit a mother-loving genocide. And let's face it. The war ends the moment the Russians want to walk back to Russia, their own home country, and Ukrainians want the war to end when they control Ukraine, and then they also control the Ukrainians because they have to get, you know, 3 million Ukrainians, I think the number's up to. Um, someone can correct me on this. It's over 200,000 kidnapped children that are currently in Russia. Uh, I really think those people need to be returned to Ukraine, their country. But, like, that's what Ukraine wants. They want their people in their homeland. So I think that seems pretty goddamn reasonable. Uh, and if you want to end this grain crisis, we should put the 100% onus on it. And I agree it's a problem on the people who think that, you know, we should try to starve the global south so we can commit a genocide. I'd say that if that's what you want to do, we should 100% agree it's a problem and call out the motherfuckers who decide to cause it. Finance, I'll just jump in and uh, face the numbers. Uh, about 2 million currently deported from Ukraine to Russia, uh, possibly a bit in excess of 2 million about 400,000 of their children. It's up to 400,000 kids? Holy... Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, Finan. Um, no, but I, I will just <laughs> echo Finan's your comments. That, you know, you're, you're completely right. This is the only way to solve this for now and solve this for later is for Russia to pack up, uh, leave all of Ukraine, uh, and for all of the sovereign Ukrainian territory to be controlled by Ukraine, all the Ukrainians to be returned back to Ukraine, from where where they have been kidnapped and deported, uh, and uh, for there to be you know actual security guarantees for Ukraine afterwards, which basically means you know Ukraine joining some sort of a. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Maria Report. Uh, we are here to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Today is the nineteenth of July. It's Tuesday. It's ten forty in Central Europe, eleven forty Kiev. 9.40 a.m. in London. It is currently 4.40 in the morning on the east coast of the U.S. and 1.40 in the morning on the west coast. If you would all be so kind as to follow the host account, if you're not following it yet, that's Maria8 underscore USA or Maria Report in the top left corner of your screen. We would be greatly appreciative of that. Anybody who'd like to jump up and speak, just click that request button in the bottom left corner of your screen and we will be on our way. Uh, if you'd all also be so kind as to click that big blue button in the bottom right corner 
off your screen and share out the space, tweet it out, share it with your followers so they know where we are. Uh, that might be more important for obvious reasons um, than some previous times. It is 1841 Australian Eastern something time. Standard time, I guess. Thank you. Uh, I, yeah, I keep missing out Australia because I never know what time it is in Australia. And I think people in Australia have a, a time on their phones up top above the Twitter space. So they probably know what time it is. Um, so, yeah, uh, where were we? Please follow the host account. Please share and retweet the space. Request to speak clicking the uh, button in the bottom left corner of the screen. Uh, and uh, everybody, come up and join us. Nina, good morning. Good morning, and uh, I guess it was like a really good crash this time. We were running for, I don't know, 25, 26 hours. It it happens when it happens, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we were, you were talking about um, with, uh, I think there was finance and, uh, uh, I don't remember, but finance at least. You finance is up about... in a second. Just give him a second to connect. He can't hear you while he's connecting. Okay. Just give him one yeah. second. When you see him, prob- okay, now he hears you. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that uh, when he was mentioning the uh, Ukrainians that are kidnapped to Russia, you said, uh, did you say 400,000 children? Roughly. Nina, as, as you know, we don't have really solid numbers, but that is the estimate, I believe, yes. Where do you know? Do you remember where you uh, read it? No, I think it was in the recent communique uh, by Zelensky when he was talking about ah, roughly okay. two million people total. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I I just kind of keep the most recent number I hear from a reliable source in the back of my mind, and no. Yeah, of course, this is like a, it, it was kind of a shock to me. I thought it was something like. Uh, 200,000, but 201 is even too much. So we are talking about 400,000. Uh, uh, yeah, it makes me like really, really uncomfortable because uh, where are they going to put all these uh, people? I mean, uh, they can't take care of their own people in Russia. So, so what, what is what is this? But what are they going to do? Russia is a big place. They can house people at pre-industrial villages with no running water. Uh, you know, abuse them with families that weren't particularly excited for a new child and indoctrinate them into their uh, Pushkin-loving, uh, Orwellian state-loving ways. I don't know what else to say on this matter. But uh, <clears throat> if they are spreading them around, as you said, it's a vast country. Uh, I, I'm just like, uh, how on earth, even if we are we would get people from, I doubt we get put into Hague, then Hague, but uh, other people rep- responsible. Uh, how can we find these people in in, in, like, uh, in Russia? I mean, I find that people really like to take a narrow view of atrocities in a time of war, um, given all the pressures that, you know, evil societies bring to anyone who doesn't conform. Uh, in general, people like to say, up, oh, you were just doing what you had to do. But when doing what you had to do involves, you know, Genocide. helping steal Ukrainian children, um, helping orphan and assist in the logistics of plundering um, the murdered uh, former owners of Ukrainian refrigerators and 
washing machines and such. Yeah, I'm okay with like goddamn everybody being punished for this shit who was involved. And who was involved is a much, much longer list than just the formal and informal militaries of the uh, Federation of Genocide. Uh, yes, and uh, I think that we can't talk about Putin's war. Uh, that's a long time ago gone. Like we are talking about the Russian war, and uh, the Russian people who are cheering uh, when the their women or other people are cheering when the uh, Russians are killing and and raping and looting in Ukraine. So uh, I think the whole country should be like put on trial. Uh, but I had a question, another question to to somebody who, who knows about this. I read this article, what you had in the nest, which is not there anymore, but I don't remember the name of the guy who posted uh, that the Germans have been lying about the nucle- nuclear war. Maybe Axel knows about this. Uh, and, I think uh, Imperius posted it, but yes. Uh-huh. Oh, okay, so uh, yeah, it was basically that... Uh, uh, my, I summed it up quickly because I didn't read the whole article, which is I d- just didn't have time to read it yet. But uh, they have been lying about the nuclear thing so that they can uh, continue with the uh, ties to to Russia. Is that the case? So it's a little bit more more involved than that. Um, I'll put it this way: there is a strong strand within German politics that really, really hates nuclear power plants for the reason that they really, really hate nuclear power plants. There is no sensible reason why, so just forget about trying to explain it because it's a, it's impossible to explain reasonably because it's not reasonable. Um, because of that, they're doing anything and everything to make sure that nuclear power plants uh, get shut down and do not restart, the ones that were either shut down or in the process of shutting down or have been disconnected from the grid while they're being shut down, but they're still producing energy. Um, that's why they were making up all sorts of excuses of why it's impossible for uh, the, this, this to continue. Uh, and they were basically made out as liars. Uh, they are still saying that it's you know impossible, but it's not impossible. And everybody now knows that it's not impossible. That's basically where it stands. That makes sense. I know it doesn't make sense because it's insane, but yeah, it's insane. But it makes sense what you say, and uh, uh, good thing that it's uh, somebody is like uh, uh, investigating a little bit this and and let's see what. And I I saw that the, it was it was shared quite many times, and I also shared it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nina. Hey, Dalman. Hey, Joseph. So uh, real quick, I guess maybe we could ask our listeners. Uh, thanks, guys, for coming back. Uh, please retweet the space. It does help us get going again. We want to try to get everyone filed back in here for uh, some some more great discussions about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you guys do have any questions, please feel free to come up and ask Delman. I'm pretty tired, but I'm sure Delman would uh, be happy to answer your question. Uh, back to you, Delman. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, Joseph. Uh, is Spring listening? Sorry, I need to get Spring back up now that Pindolino rejoined us. Give me two seconds. Joseph, can you can you carry the, the torch for uh, about 30 seconds? You, you. bet, Doman. So, yeah, guys, uh, welcome back. Of course, uh, let me let me go inside here and uh, get you some speaker cards. we got a lot of great speakers coming up on the Maria Report. So, first off, we got... 
Joseph, are you going to are you going to give the pep talk here? Sorry, one more time, Nina. Are you going to give us the pep talk? Oh man, I I did a pep talk today, huh? It's like my first like Axel speech. I hope it went well. Um, okay, so uh, we've got uh, Yaroslav Matushin. He's going to be here uh, today, uh, July nineteenth, one p.m. Eastern time or uh, seventeen hundred coordinated Universal time. Uh, so yeah, one p.m. Eastern time. You guys want to check? You can pull up Eastern time now. Maybe see where that is in relation to you, because I'm going to read a couple more. Uh, the next day, so tomorrow, Wednesday, July twentieth, uh, at two p.m. Eastern time, eighteen hundred coordinated Universal time. We have Shum. He's a volunteer combat medic in Ukraine. Then uh, that same day, Wednesday, July twentieth, three thirty p.m. Eastern time, we've got Lukasz Tomiki. He is a uh, basically a hedge fund manager. Uh, he's also uh, done some political analysis, and uh, he's a guest uh, that finance is brought to us. Uh, so I'm sure it'll be a great discussion about uh, you know economics and politics, geopolitics. So uh, with that, I, I'm hoping that was enough time that I bought Doman uh, to to finish his his admin admin work. Uh, Doman, back to you. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, yeah, I think I had just about enough time. Uh, Pedolina, uh, I hope you have another couple of minutes to hang about because we're still uh, waiting for spring to redry. I've let her know, uh, but hopefully she'll be up in a matter of minutes. Um, in other news, our special, our favorite cat, Joseph, yours, yours and mine, special Kherson cat, uh, has been noting that there has been an explosion in Kherson Close to Antonovsky Bridge, it seems to have been, I believe, on the other side of the bridge uh, from Kherson. Um, and according to local residents, they have heard up to six explosions somewhere on the left bank. That is the other side from where Kherson is um, uh, of, of the bridge. Um, and at the same time, guess where, where there was another explosion reported to Joseph near Kherson. Guess where? Oh, Novokovka. No, Chernobylka, obviously. Oh, right, the airport. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, Spring, welcome up. Nina, uh, let's, let's please have Spring go ahead, uh, because this is a question from over an hour ago, from Spring to Pendolino, and I think Pendolino probably has to run to do some work soon. Spring, please go ahead. Hi, everyone. Thank you for letting me go in front, Nina. Uh, good morning, uh, Pendolino. I got very puzzled with your about Switzerland. Because for me, it's astonishing the this I will call it human, human. It's not a human decision, not even taking care of the wounded, um, not even speaking about the so-called neutrality that doesn't work for financial issues, um, meaning banking the Russian money, but probably more. Other European countries are doing the same. It's not a unique case. Um, how is the current government in Switzerland? And um, can you explain us a bit about it? And um, what are the main ideas, the connections? And last, I think I know that it's a lot of questions, but um, what is the Swiss public opinion towards the invasion of Russia? Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you very much for your questions. Um, in fact, it's a bit complicated here in Switzerland because unlike other democratic countries, we don't have a government uh, which is uh, constituted in a sort of uh, bipartisan uh, 
government opposition system, but it's more like that the leading parties throughout the spectrum uh, of politics from the very far left to the very far right are um, are uh, constituting a, a government together. So you have uh, pop, uh, populist parties from the right and the left in the federal government. And uh, the federal government um, uh, is therefore split uh, in their views on the inside, but it acts as a unitary uh, government to the outside. So they may decide uh, within their uh, within the parties and the members of the government in the ratio four to three that uh, they don't want to uh, support Ukraine with medical aid or whatever. And then every member of the government has to defend this position towards the um, towards the public. And the thing with the Ukraine support is that it is coming under pressure, first of all, from the far right, uh, because uh, we have the situation here in Switzerland where the far right uh, party is somehow really good connected uh, to Russia. Um, uh, the, their main um, their main proponents uh, came out as really pro Putin. One has a tabloid where he is stating controversial things about the situation in Ukraine, supporting the Russian narrative. And of course, in addition to that, in his newspaper, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Switzerland is a, is a regular contributor with uh, open ad pieces uh, uh, how the world works. So this gives you an idea how screwed up uh, the thinking on this side of the political party is. And then the left-hand side, you have uh, a party in the Swiss government who wants to abolish uh, the Swiss military and uh, who has a, a strong opposition to any anything that could come close to military support, therefore. Um, and also that does not want uh, to get involved in, in, in foreign stuff. So they, they are proposing uh, the, the, good, the, good, uh, the good values of Switzerland and uh, that we could, could give financial support. I mean, that's one of the things that Switzerland tries to excel with the Lugano approach and everything. But as soon as it becomes very, um, very precise or uh, something that can be done right now, then it's really walk and they don't really have an, an idea what to do during the war. They have tons of idea how to do the best after the war, but right now they don't have an idea. And uh, this, this melange leads to the situation that the NATO and Ukraine requested Switzerland that, uh, the, that they sh could, if they could take in wounded soldiers and civilians. And uh, in Switzerland, uh, healthcare is, uh, is uh, like in the United States, it's, uh, it's, it's a thing of the state, not of the federal government. So the states uh, confirmed to NATO and Ukraine that they would be willing to take in wounded uh, individuals from Ukraine. But then the federal government stepped in 
and said, well, no, this would violate uh, the neutrality laws. And that's why we cannot admit anyone in. And uh, this is because the federal government uh, consists of all of these parties with their, uh, uh, their, with their somehow uh, misled views on reality, both on the left and the right. And that's why it uh, has been, uh, they, they had to uh, give up on the idea that they could support this. And the thing is, uh, the, the funny thing about it is that first of all, Switzerland hosts the Swiss Red, the Red Cross, um, which is primarily there to support people in wartime, right? And also in the past, Switzerland took in tens of thousands of wounded soldiers and civilians in both world wars. And uh, when you want to make it coherent to neutrality, it's kind of an easy job because, I mean, if Ukraine is asking that you t they, they can send uh, their wounded individuals to Switzerland, Switzerland can say yes and send, the, send a letter to Moscow and tell them, well, we also take care of your heavily wounded soldiers. I mean, everyone would do that on this planet, I think, or even NATO countries. And um, but of course, since they are the mightiest uh, or second mightiest country in the world, they would uh, kindly relinquish that uh, offer. And uh, when they don't want to have it right, then send them over. And the other, the other, res the other reservation they the government brought forward that they could not distinguish between uh, in the, uh, civilians and soldiers. Uh, because it's necessary to keep the soldiers after the treatment out of the war. It's also somehow irrelevant because, of course, you would medevac only soldiers and civilians to Switzerland, which are really in poor condition and not people that can be treated and sent back to the front line within, let's say, three weeks to six months. No, you would take in people that have really uh, drastic issues, which are unfit for service anyway. So uh, this is totally the, the right of, of any sense. And uh, uh, you can clearly see that in the government, there's no one who has any idea on how war uh, works. And of course, also uh, how international um, precautions could come back to Switzerland because this will heavily backfire on Switzerland. Uh, that's it. That's what I can tell you about it. So it's a real mess. It's fucked up. And this is caused by the fact that Switzerland has no, has not a government that could take a stance because it's an amalgam of all parties uh, from the far right to the far left uh, that take uh, decisions uh, which are in many cases when it comes to foreign policy not at the best, uh, also from uh, from uh, also, and also not uh, supported by the public or the main public. Because I think when you make the polls here in Switzerland, the public is very well supporting Ukraine and their cause. I've not seen people that are openly pro-Russian, with I think like say three three exceptions that I know personally. Can I just make you, uh, thank you very much for Certainly. your explanation, Pendeline. It's quite um, it's quite good to understand other countries, and uh, I think it's a big difference between the public opinions and the governments nowadays in Europe. Europe, um, it's all over. Uh, the 
public opinion is a lot more supportive than the government. Um, and or I will just make uh, two, uh, three small remarks. It's nothing against you, as you know, but uh, it's uh, quite um, weird times that we are living. That all the extremist parties are pro-Putin. Somehow it's a matter of being financed all over Europe. It's nothing different from any other places, including my country. Um, and uh, a kind of sarcastic remark is that I don't know any of any serious wounded person that can fight. And um, we are dealing something in Europe that we have to speak amongst ourselves that is poor leadership. We don't have leaders. We have small shifts. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, we have small minds and uh, not real re uh, leaders. That's the thing. And and I think it's it's not as uh, uh, it's not the. Fa I don't think that's uh, it's the case that the the far right politicians, for instance, in Switzerland, are bought or somehow financed by Russia because they really don't need it. Switzerland doesn't need any foreign financing, uh, not even the poorest uh, the political party. Uh, but um, they, they, they really driven by the fact that they can do really good business. And uh, when there's something where, when there's one thing where, which, where, where Switzerland excels is uh, exploiting other countries uh, and hiding it behind uh, the, good, uh, the, the good face that they smile to everyone. But in fact, of course, uh, when you have a, a look at commodities trading, gold trading, oil trading, uh, everything, financing of these exploitation things. Uh, I mean, Switzerland is one of the main hubs for it, right? Right, thank you. And thank you for your time, too. Thank you, Pindalina. Thank you, Spring. Pindalina, just, just one little thing, right? So basically, th there is additional um, slowness of decision-making, additional gridlock because of the particular... Uh, way this government is run, right? And this particular um, inertia, particularly high levels of inertia is what I was getting at. Yes, uh, yes, it is. I mean, you can see it. Uh, Switzerland has uh, decided a few months ago to procure the F-35 uh, fighter jet. And uh, after we had held two popular votes, so everyone uh, uh, was asked uh, if you would buy a fighter jet first, if you want to buy the, the Saab Gripen, but uh, we we denied that uh, because we thought it would any day be the, the wrong jet for us. And then if we really want to have a fighter jet, yes, of course, there was the public vote. And then they decided to procure the F-45. And then the initiative committee came up and said, well, yeah, in fact, we would support the Swiss Air Force to procure a new fighter jet, but it shouldn't be an American one. So a completely made up uh, story. I mean, because they simply want to abolish the Swiss uh, army anyway. But the thing is, <laughs> the same party who is behind this initiative is also in the government, right? They have two seats out in the seven uh, seats government, and this shows how crazy the whole thing is. That is, uh, is indeed crazy. Uh, if I could just uh, ask everyone to please share and retweet the space, uh, click that big blue button in the bottom right corner with about 140 people uh, 25 minutes after the restart. Following the crash, uh, we should be at about double that. So please go ahead and share and retweet. Um, Joseph, if you had the Swiss point, go ahead. Otherwise, we'll go on to Nina. Joseph? Yeah, I guess I was just wondering, Penelon, if you could sort of define the concept of neutrality as understood by the Swiss. Because 
whenever we hear about the Swiss sort of acting in this, uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and, and we hear about weapons deals or whatnot, we always, it's, it's generally, there's a reference to Swiss neutrality, right? Why they're doing it or why they're not. So I was wondering if you just give us like a broad understanding of what, what you think, particularly in relation to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what does Swiss neutrality mean? Thanks. That's really a good question because Swiss neutrality is uh, depending on the conflict you're in. Um, when you have a look on, on uh, Swiss history from 1815 to, until today, there were ma many cases where Switzerland was directly at uh, threat uh, to, become, to get invaded. And uh, there they had a complete uh, different interpretation of uh, neutrality. When Switzerland was not at the, in, at, on an immediate threat, they interpreted neutrality to be somehow quite open. For instance, when the apartheid regime came under uh, pressure uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, Switzerland said, well, we are neutral. That's why we're selling uh, tanks and... Uh, and anti-aircraft guns uh, to South Africa and buying their gold and selling it elsewhere. That was an interpretation there of neutrality, which is, was kind of selfish, right? And in the case of Ukraine now, it, first I thought maybe this would be the real case uh, that we could support uh, Ukraine with the best we can do. So certainly we won't send our 100 uh, Leopard 2s that we have in storage that could uh, roll out on the field at any point in time. Uh, but uh, maybe with uh, protective uh, stuff and uh, money and everything. But because, I mean, we are not threatened at all, right? So there's nothing that could happen to us. But uh, it turned out, no, uh, <laughs> the Swiss, current Swiss government uh, is more reluctant to provide anything to Ukraine than they were when they were in the Second World War under the direct threat of getting invaded by Italy and Germany. There, there, there they, they even sold uh, anti-aircraft guns to the United Kingdom, right? And of course, also to the Germans, bad part, but uh, they, were, they interpreted then neutrality that everyone can have it, uh, but they supported both sides, more or less equally or unequally from time to time. But here they decided neutrality means that we don't do anything. And it turns out when you have now a map of what country expelled Russian uh, spies and, uh, uh, and uh, diplomats, Switzerland is the only country in Europe that has not expelled any um, diplomat and uh, DRU uh, uh, spy. Uh, despite the fact that we have hundreds of them here in Switzerland, we are, we are I think we are anyway also in peacetime. We have Geneva, the international Geneva, we have Bern, we have we have so many active spies here, and uh, Switzerland was already once targeted 